Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Pim Fox, along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day, we bring you the most important, noteworthy, and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find the Bloomberg PL Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Bloomberg.com. I'm Lisa Abramowitz, and joining me here in the Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studios is Paul Sweeney, head of North American Research for Bloomberg Intelligence. A lot of focus on China, because even though there is this trade tension between the U.S. and China, perhaps the real story is the slowing Chinese economy. And, and joining us now to really talk about that is George Magnus, associate at the China Center at Oxford University, former chief economist of UBS. George, I want to start with that, with the retail sales and the other data that we got overnight out of China not great, Came, coming in below estimates and showing a cool down, even with additional stimulus from the government. Yeah, um, it's um, it, uh, a conundrum that's been playing out really for um, well, pretty much all year, to be honest, Lisa. Um, uh, you know, some of the regular monthly numbers, like the ones we had today, that show uh, retail sales really, I mean, not, I would say, kind of falling off the edge of a cliff, but certainly quite weak. And car sales in China uh, have been dropping year over year for the last five or six months, which is quite unusual. Um, the monthly data which released, uh, which came out today for investment spending for November um, is at its lowest levels, really, in terms of growth since 2003. Uh, the property market is showing kind of mixed signals, but a lot of the um, indicators that people watch uh, about how much floor space is being started and how much uh, construction is going on are starting to roll over. So, um, yeah, I mean, this is, um, it's becoming quite serious, actually, because the official rhetoric is changing as well uh, about uh, stimulus. And I think that's something we're going to watch quite closely over the next few weeks. Uh, switching gears, uh, George, a little bit to trade. Um, aside from the immediate uh, political fallout from the Huawei arrest for U.S. and China, how material is this incident, do you believe, to U.S.-China trade relationship as tenuous as it may be? Uh, how you mean the arrest? Yes. Yeah. Uh, well, so far, I think um, uh, from the Chinese perspective, I think they they're trying to kind of twin track this, which is uh, you know just to, ex or to certainly to tell the Canadians in no uncertain terms what they think about what's just happened. I mean, I think it's interesting that their anger has been uh, focused on Canada rather than the United States. Uh, but they're not very happy about it, as you know, and they've um, uh, also kind of detained two Canadian citizens, um, uh, which looks like a kind of tit-for-tat kind of measure. But at the same time, um, it's interesting that they, they don't really want this trade truce to blow up. Um, and they have certainly been taking a lot of uh, care to try to keep it on track. So their imports of uh, American soybeans and liquefied natural gas have already kind of risen. Um, they've made kind of uh, this um, uh, offer, which I think you covered in your news package, about uh, cutting the punitive tariff on American automobile imports back to where it was before at 15%. 
Uh, and there are other things going on, very, very importantly, actually, with their industrial strategy called Made in China 2025, um, which we may hear a lot more about over the next um, few days and weeks, which, which may have substance. It, it may just be optics. But they certainly want to try to twin-track this. And I don't think the arrest of uh, the Huawei uh, kind of CFO is, is going to derail the trade uh, talks for the moment, at least. You know, George, I kind of want to pair these two ideas of the slowing Chinese economy and some of the trade tensions. Do you think that all of the headlines about trade negotiations between the U.S. and China are masking the bigger story of of China's economy and the failure uh, of stimulus to increase growth more? Well, I think it's, um, uh, I just think it's, in a way, it's a bit of an accident, because I think if, if, let's say, you know, the... um, uh, the, the tension between the United States and China had broken out last year uh, rather than this year, then, you know, we wouldn't really, at that point, we wouldn't really have been talking about the Chinese economy very much because it was uh, it was still kind of responding to uh, the kind of stimulus that had previously still been in the system. But it has all come together in a very untimely way uh, from Beijing's perspective. So the, the trade, the impact of the trade tariffs up until now has not really been that significant in terms of uh, kind of economic growth. And, and what it has done has been offset, really, by some of the incremental changes which have taken place in Chinese uh, monetary policy. Uh, but <clears throat> this is why the truce is really so valuable to them, because had the tariffs gone up from 10 to 25% on the 1st of January, and if President Trump had extended, as he had threatened to do, the punitive tariffs to the other half of the goods which America imports from China, then by the end of 2019 and certainly in 2020, we would certainly have seen a much more marked impact on what is already a slowing economy. So for China, it's an aggravation uh, which they don't really need and which I think this is why Xi Jinping uh, probably would like to reach some kind of accord if he can. So, George, just to follow up on that, so... I guess you, know, you talked about a twin track approach to, to the Huawei incident and others. And so how incentivized do you believe China is to negotiate meaningful trade agreements in this environment where, you know, President Trump has really ratcheted up um, the rhetoric uh, pretty significantly? Yeah, well, um, I mean, this is a moving feast, Tim. I think um, it, we're not quite sure actually which way this is going, because the, the, the latest kind of um, thing that I think China watches are kind of focused on is really the um, suggestion, that's all it is at this point, but the suggestion that the Made in China industrial policy, which has been the, um, a long-running sore for American businesses in China, and European for that matter, um, but also for the White House, that, um, that there may be some flexibility in um, China's approach to branding and, well, implementing the policy. Having said that, if it's just a question of changing the branding and kind of reformulating the strategy that makes it look less threatening, I don't think the White House will be fooled for one minute. Um, but if there is some substance in it, um, and President uh, Xi Jinping certainly has been minded to respond to criticism at home rather than abroad uh, for his approach here to industrial policy, 
then um, there may be some meat on this. You know, there may be uh, reasons uh, to expect this trade, these trade talks to actually end up um, at least partially successful. But it's early days. I, wouldn't, I certainly wouldn't want to be drawn on this myself. I, I mean, I remain rather skeptical um, that, uh, that President Xi Jinping is a closet reformer and wants to kind of change China's technological ambitions. But um, anyway, we shall see before long how this evolves. George Magnus, and we will have you back on to discuss it. George Magnus, economist and associate at the China Center at Oxford University, formerly chief economist at UBS, uh, talking of China and the data that we got out overnight that showed a weakening economy as well as trade. In order to get some more insight on what uh, Michael Cohen's allegations, as well as some of President Trump's responses, uh, mean for the president, I want to bring in Noah Feldman, professor of law at Harvard University, also a Bloomberg Opinion columnist. Noah, thank you so much for being with us. You wrote a really interesting column analyzing some of President Trump's recent responses to this interview. Can you just lay out what your main point was there? Sure. Um, President Trump often tweet stream of consciousness, but yesterday was not one of those days. His tweet, which sounds a lot like it was written with a lawyer at his shoulder, laid out three defenses uh, that he has to offer to the charge that he is guilty of a felony because he directed Michael Cohen to commit a felony of campaign finance violations. Noah, uh, first of all, thank you so much for writing this column because I find myself, I often need help parsing uh, the president's tweets and, and this column uh, was a big help in parsing this morning's um, tweets from the president. Can you summarize kind of what his defense, you think the defense that he is laying out in these tweets and how they um, you know, kind of uh, really relate to what uh, Michael Cohen is saying? Sure. Basically what the president is saying is, first of all, Michael Cohen was my lawyer. And I told my lawyer to pay off Stormy Daniels, and that was legal. It was okay to tell him to do that. It's the way he did it that was illegal, and what did I know about that? He was my lawyer, and I expected him to do it legally. So I may have directed him to pay her off, but that shouldn't constitute a crime on my side. His second defense is, if it was a crime, if it was a violation of campaign finance violation, it wasn't a severe one, and if it wasn't a severe one, it should be treated as a civil violation. That is to say, you pay a fine, but you don't go to prison, uh, not as a criminal one. And his third and final, and admittedly a little bit desperate, claim is that even though Michael Cohen pled guilty to it being a crime, Cohen only did that as part of a deal with prosecutors, and he didn't get any extra jail time for that, according to Trump. And therefore, that shouldn't be weighed as significant in deciding whether the president, when he leaves office, should be charged with a felony. Now, what do you think President Trump is worried about? I mean, is he worried about impeachment? Is he worried about prosecution? What is this, what is this responding I to? I really don't think he's worried right now about impeachment in connection with the Stormy Daniels payout. I think he believes, and there seems to be evidence for this, that his base is continuing to support him, and he's unlikely to be removed by the Senate or even impeached by the House for this. What he is worried about and what he should be worried about and what his lawyers must be worried about is that once he's out of office, you know, whether in 2020 or 2021 or 2025, that he's vulnerable to a criminal prosecution, not brought by Bob Mueller, but brought by the Southern District of New York. Because the usual practice is if they get someone to plead guilty to a felony, and that person says, I did it at the behest of a higher-up, they then go after the higher-up, and he's the higher-up, according to Michael Cohen. No, you know, I couldn't find it. Uh, I found it, you know, not coincidental that uh, the day that uh, Michael Cohen um, 
pled guilty that uh, the National Enquirer and its parent company, American Media, acknowledged paying off um, uh, Playboy model uh, Karen McDougal. How significant is that uh, piece of news as it relates to the president and his legal exposure here? I think it's actually pretty important because what it does is it provides independent verification of what Cohen said. In the past, it was possible for Trump to say, well, Michael Cohen's a liar. This, this never happened. But here you have independent sources, the, the directors of the parent company of the National Enquirer, who were saying, we also engaged in a parallel illegal campaign finance violation arrangement to pay off McDougal. And so that means that it's not all about Cohen now. It's also about another set of witnesses um, who can testify that the president was directly involved in a campaign finance violation that counts as a felony. Professor Feldman, I got to be honest, when I talk to a lot of market participants, they say we're growing numb to the President Trump news and sure. to everything that's coming out. It comes fast and furious and more sensational, and we just don't care because the economy is doing just fine. So I'm just wondering, is this different or is this just more pile on that's not going to really essentially amount to anything with respect to his presidency uh, or anything else? Well, it depends on whether you think that a president who seriously realizes that he may face criminal indictment is going to govern differently. And my own view is that, although it's not the easiest thing to quantify, a president who's walking around thinking that prosecutors are going to charge him the day he leaves office is going to be affected in how he does things. He's going to have to be more cautious on a range of things. He's going to have to be more focused on protecting himself. He may be tempted to use the pardon power in ways that create backlash. So, you know, I, I understand the sense of, oh, my goodness, not another story, and that's a, an understandable sensation. But from the standpoint of the future of the Republican in the next two or two and a half years, I think this is actually pretty significant. Real quickly, uh, Professor, what do you think prosecutors will do here? This defense that you kind of summarized here, um, is it credible? And what do you think prosecutors ultimately do? Well, I think as a legal defense, what the president is suggesting is not especially credible. I don't think it would save him from being convicted. What's interesting is whether it would lead prosecutors to say, well, you know what? We're not going to go after him criminally. We'll just try to hit him with a civil violation. And I think a lot of that would depend on who was the president and who was running the Department of Justice after his presidency was over. You can easily imagine a Democrat saying, you know, let's, who's become president, saying, let's put this to bed. Let's see if there's any reasonable way we can avoid charging a president with a crime. And in yeah. that, those circumstances, they would probably get away with it. Noah Feldman, thank you so much for being with us. Noah Feldman, professor of law at Harvard University, also a Bloomberg opinion columnist, speaking to myself and Paul Sweeney, filling in for Pim Fox. Paul Sweeney, head of North American Research for Bloomberg Intelligence. I'm joined by Paul Sweeney filling in for Pim Fox. Paul Sweeney, of course, is the head of North American Research at Bloomberg Intelligence. And we were just speaking with a futurist for the car industry. Let's now speak to a futurist for the fixed income industry, Kathleen Gaffney, who I'm sure is so excited to look into her crystal ball for us. Co-director of Diversified Fixed Income at Eaton Vance, overseeing, uh, helping to oversee $453 billion of assets and based in Boston. She joins us here in our 1130 studios. So Kathleen, for next year, we saw a pretty rough year this year for investors grade credit great year for cash next year what will be the best performer and what will be the worst performer in credit oh pull out that crystal ball come on you can do it (laughs) (laughs) Uh, it's getting it's getting a lot trickier right now but 
I do think that the most important lever in fixed income for next year is going to be uh, the dollar, a weak dollar. And the currencies that perform better relative will be what saves performance for the year. So as you think about 2019, let's let's bring the Fed into this. I mean, what is your outlook for rates and maybe, you know, give us your outlook for 2019 and maybe 2020 if you want to go that far. How about 2021? <laughs> <laughs> I did say futurist. Um, 2035. <laughs> there you go. I think obviously rates are going to go higher, but what's getting tricky right now is the amount of uncertainty that's weighing on the market makes that a very difficult call. Uh, they should move up a little bit, but given the amount of uncertainty, I'm less certain that there's going to be a big move. Um, a weaker dollar is going to be a big part of keeping growth going. I think that's what the Fed has really been focused on. So a weak dollar, that means emerging markets outperform. I mean, that's sort of the implication here. And I'm just wondering, how does that play into the global economic slowdown that we're seeing? Because usually EM gets the flu when developed markets get a cold, and it seems like developed markets are getting a little bit of a cold. They definitely are, uh, but I think there's much too much pessimism out there. It feels a little bit like 2015 once again. Um, really? Yeah, really. But, but like this time around is a little bit different because central banks are actually withdrawing stimulus. They are making it less accommodative. It's still a very low interest rate environment. And if they're not going to move up quickly, there's just enough to go around. China uh, is definitely slowing, and that's impacting the trade tensions in probably a positive way, at least in the short term. That's what I mean about tricky. Everything in the short term is different for the long term. Uh, and there are enough things that are causing a slowdown, but enough things that will keep everything just right. But you still don't have enough value in the fixed income markets in the developed world. Rates, the rate markets, and credit are still not cheap enough, and they may not cheapen up and up enough. But if the economy is going to keep going, and if the central banks are more dovish right now, that's what will weaken the dollar, and that will get things going again. So you mentioned uh, the markets being tricky. Does that mean volatile? Because the volatility in this market, I know, has been unnerving for uh, many. What is your expectation for the level of volatility in this market as we look into next year? It's going to continue to be high. I I believe that the hardest part of transitioning from a secular decline to a secular rise is this near term getting back to normal off the zero bound. Once we get through a full cycle and we're back to normal, then it becomes normal cycles. But this is going to be challenging, and a lot of that is due to we're transitioning from monetary policy to fiscal policy, and it's very difficult to read uh, the politicians from the developed markets to the emerging markets. It has been so almost almost easy to listen to the central bankers and it's either a risk off day or a risk on day and then you know what to do. Do we take more risk or reduce risk? This is far trickier. Lots of different things going on. 
All right, leveraged loans. We've heard a lot about the souring of leveraged loans, how this is Armageddon, this is the epicenter of everything going south. Are you seeing opportunities at this point? Has it been oversold, or do you think that this is an area of uh, more pain to come? I'm not a big believer in chasing yield, spread for spread's sake. It's all relative. I believe you want to look for good total return. Loans have cheapened a bit with the concerns, but not enough as a total return investor. I think they're going to be incredibly important in the years ahead because there will be a much uh, more integrated market in high yield between loans and high yield. I'm going to put you on the spot here. Do you think that banks are going to suffer big losses due to hung bridge loans or basically loans that they've extended to private equity firms for buyouts that they now have to sell into a market that's deteriorating? It is deteriorating, but not enough at this point. Um, the supply demand is in balance. When that shifts, the prices that are attractive for a total return investor will come back. We're not there yet. Kathleen, we had a uh, earlier in the show, we had a, a, the CEO of a, a home builder, Taylor Morrison, uh, on the show, just talking about the the, uh, the home market here in the U.S. How do you guys think about that sector, you know, given that interest rates rising a little bit? Or do you have any exposure there? What are you looking to do? We do have some small exposure. It's been uh, challenging to find uh, home builder credits that are cheap enough. Most of them are below investment grade, but still... Uh, higher quality, uh, high yield, double B. Um, but there are uh, a few on on the edge of investment grade that do look attractive because they cheapened up as everyone worried about rates moving higher. Now that they're taking a more gradual path, uh, and I believe with uh, wages rising and that pent-up demand from millennials, uh, my own children uh, is going to foster that demand. So I, we're comfortable with home builders. Next year, which uh, which asset class will outperform, high yield or investment grade? It's a tough call between those two. Uh, I'm going to say potentially high yield if rates don't it could, if rates just move up gradually because we're not going to get that default cycle yet. Right. And the, the, the pressures in investment grade with triple Bs uh, create enough idiosyncratic risk throughout the year, which will be good pickings for just the right names. Kathleen Gaffney, always a pleasure having you. We love having you here. Kathleen Gaffney is co-director of Diversified Fixed Income for Eaton Vance. Paul, our next guest has the most amazing job title. Oh, yeah, very cool. I have to be a futurist. Yeah. Uh, and to be a futurist at a car company. Pretty very amazing. Cool. Cheryl Connolly, futurist at Ford Motor Company. Cheryl, what is a futurist? <laughs> so the futurist is somebody who helps an organization do long-term planning, thinking, strategy, so that they can get ahead of the marketplace. And in the auto industry, that's particularly important because it takes about three years to come up with a concept and actually have it hit the road. Cheryl, you know, it's it's interesting. I, I've been going to the Consumer Electronics Show in Las Vegas, uh, you know, where they highlight all the cool new technologies and gadgets for about 30 years. And I've noticed over the last five to seven years that 
the electronic show has really become an auto show where the auto companies take up about half of the floor space. It's just amazing to see how tech is really front and center in the car business. So, you know, at Ford, what are the top tech priorities or opportunities for you guys? And, you know, where's Ford putting its money as it thinks uh, several years out? Well, it's interesting that you mentioned CES because Ford actually was the first automaker to uh, show there. And it was in recognition that a car isn't just a car anymore. It is a complex collection of computers. I mean, back in the day, my dad, your grandfather, they could tinker under the hood, and now you need a computer science degree to do so. Uh, And so that's going to continue. And my job is really to look at tech through the lens of the consumer. And right now, people have concern about tech. I mean, they readily recognize technology has made their lives better. Uh, that it's been a force for good, but there are lingering concerns about the unforeseen consequences that tech might bring. So we did some research in 14 different countries, and we spoke specifically to people of all ages, but in one part of the the study, we found that 18 to 24-year-olds, close to 50% of them, worry that technology is trying to get inside their head. Well, I mean... (laughs) They can give up that worry because I'll just give you the answer. It is. I, I guess, though, one question I have as a car company, how do you make sure that the uh, interface is user-friendly, that people can actually use all of the technology currently available? Because people are talking about all this high-tech stuff. But when I talk about people who go to car shows, they say their main job as representatives of the car companies are simply to explain to people how to use their cars. Well, that is something that we really have to take a lot of measure and care in terms of delivering. So we have um, teams that work on human-machine interface, and we want to make everything seamless. So when we introduced our our platform that connected Bluetooth technology with the entertainment system called Sync, uh, we made sure that it was voice-activated and hands-free so that it would be seamless. And we're increasingly using platforms that mirror the ones that we're most comfortable with. So we do... um, the Apple CarPlay, um, and so the interface that you're used to seeing on your digital device often mirrors what's on your dashboard. But as we go forward and we bring more advanced technology, it's really about making sure customers are comfortable with it. So a number of people are very concerned about artificial intelligence, for instance. 37% of men say they're afraid of it. 44% of women agree with that statement. And if you were to ask a little bit more, almost to the exact same percentage, men and women say they don't understand artificial intelligence. And so for 2019, we have the Ford Edge, which uses AI to look at the vehicle's powertrain. But if you break it down and explain to the driver, basically all that means is that we have sensors around the vehicle that are evaluating the driving road conditions. We have software and algorithms that work together to make a decision about whether the vehicle should be in two-wheel drive or all-wheel drive. And that's all it is. So you have to demystify what artificial intelligence is so that you make sure people are comfortable using the technology. Cheryl, self-driving cars, what is Ford saying about the self-driving car are we going to see it? When are we going to go? To, when are we going to see it? And is that um, is that something that's going to be in the near term? Yes, 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 and yes. Oh boy! By 2021, Ford will have self-driving vehicles on the road. But to be very clear about that, uh, self-driving vehicles will be available in limited capacity, probably for commercial application like package delivery or some ride-hailing services. And we actually have pilots running today in cities like Miami as well as Washington, D.C. And for the most part, believe, people believe, that they're, they're, in the countries, about half the people we spoke to say they actually believe a self-driving car will be um, safer 
yeah. on the road than uh, humans driving cars, particularly with all the digital distractions that we have. Cheryl, 10 seconds. Do you think a child born today will learn how to actually physically drive a car when they're an adult? Yes, with the caveat that it depends on where they live, because autonomous vehicles will be a norm when they grow up, but it's very context-driven. And so there are still people who love to drive their cars, and we'll have to work in partnerships with cities that want to bring it to the marketplace. But the thing I would leave you with is that 67% of the adults that we spoke to said that they would rather their child ride in a self-driving vehicle than ride with a stranger. As a parent of two boys who I hope are not listening, I 100% agree. Cheryl Connolly, thank you so much. Cheryl Connolly is a futurist for Ford Motor Co. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.